Welcome, and thank you for downloading Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Here at Movement, we are passionate about God's Word and helping each other move closer to God. Thank you for choosing to grow with us today. Um, my name is Stephen Reed. I'm not the typical guy who stands up here. The guy who does that, his name is Bobby. And uh, he and his family, they are out with some celebrations this week and next weekend. Um, their, their daughter's getting married, and so they are out traveling with that. And so he asked me a, co- a few weeks ago, he said, Hey, Stephen, would you uh, mind preaching for me on the 26th whenever I'm gone? And I said, Yeah, I, I can do that for you. Um, for those of you guys who may not know, I work with a campus ministry. It's called Campus Christian Fellowship over here at NC State. And for about four and a half years or so, my wife and my family and I have been coming to this church. It's been our home church here in the Raleigh area. And, and we love this church. Um, and any chance that I can have to give back, because the love that you guys have for us, as, uh, for myself as a campus minister and for our family, and, and you guys support the ministry. You come out a couple times a year, bring us food and all that good stuff. And you pray for us, and you even help us financially every single month. And so when Bobby said, hey, we're going to be going through the Gospel of Mark, and I want you to, to kind of fill in for me whenever I'm gone, would you do that? I was, I was excited. And then add to that that the Gospel of Mark is, is one of my favorite Gospels. Um, I will talk a little bit more about why it's my favorite in just a little bit. Um, but before we really get started, I want to do something that's a little bit different than normal. Um, normally, for myself, and, and probably, probably, probably most preachers, um, when they, when they read the story of God they, um, and, and we're preaching it, we would typically read it all kind of like, I would read it and then I'd explain it and then read it and explain it. But this morning, um, I, have, I have a lot that I want to read from Scripture so that you guys can have a chance to understand the full context before I just dive right into it and start talking about it. So um, I'm going to read from Mark chapter 2, starting at verse 13, and we're going to go all the way through the end of the chapter and then through verse 6 of chapter 3. Um, and the reason why I want to do this is twofold. I want to do it so that you guys, before everything gets started, you can see the story of what we're going to be talking about today. That you can see the story of God through Mark chapter 2. And the other reason why I want to do it is so that as I'm going back and talking about it, and as I'm going back and pulling out the different stories, because there's four stories that we're going to take a look at, it'll be easier for me to just be able to kind of do like a Stephen paraphrase because you'll already have read the scripture and we'll already have it on the screen. So if you guys want to follow along with me, you can. We're going to read from Mark chapter 2 and we're going to start with verse 13. Last week, if you guys weren't here, Bobby started Mark chapter 2 and it was talking about the story of the guy who was paralyzed and who was lowered down the roof. And if you haven't, if you weren't here last week or you haven't had a chance to listen to what Bobby said about it, I, I encourage you to go back and listen to the video because he did, he like knocked out of the park. Like the whole point of it was... My, my paraphrasing of it, the whole point of it was you need to have people who are willing to bring you to Jesus. You need to have people who are willing to lower you down a roof and they have your corner of the mat. Like they, they're, they're lowering him down. They're in your corner. Do you have people in your life, men and women who are in your life who have your back and are willing to bring you to Jesus? And it was, it was a phenomenal, phenomenally good sermon because it reminds us just how important community can be. And so he ended with verse 12 where that story ends. And so this morning I want to pick up with Mark chapter 2, verses 13 through the end. And I also want to do something a little different as well. I want to ask that if you guys are able and willing, would you guys stand with me? Normally, normally we don't necessarily stand when we read the scripture, but this morning I want to do that for the purpose of, 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 of letting me kind of speak the word of God to us as we stand and receive it. So if you're willing and able, go ahead and stand with me as we read these stories. And the way they're going to appear on screen, um, I'm not going to do verse by verse. It's going to be kind of the story by story. So if it's, if it's small print and you have a hard time seeing it, my apologies, it's intentional because I want you to know that I'm not just pulling random verses out and making this stuff up. This is how it appears in Scripture. 
So Mark chapter 2, 13, this is from the NIV. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him, and Levi got up and followed everything. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but the sinners. And Mark continues with verse 18, says, now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? And Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot, so long as they have him with them. But the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins, otherwise the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wineskins. In verse 23, one Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields, and his disciples walked along. They began to pick some heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? And Jesus answered, he answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. Then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And so the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And then we go to chapter 3, that was the end of chapter 2, and this is the last section here. Another time, Jesus was, another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. And some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? To save life or to kill? But they remained silent, and he looked around at them in anger. And deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Father, I thank you this morning for the chance that I have to be up here and to speak, to be here with this church that, 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 that loves us and that we love. Father, I pray that the things that, um, I pray the things that we do in our life reflect the fact that we love you and that we're striving for a relationship with you. God, I pray that this morning the things, um, I, there is so much, Father, I could, I could speak on. And I pray, Father, that the things that I have chosen to speak, the things that I've whittled down are really the things that you have said, this is what I think these people need to hear this morning. And if there's anything that I'm going to say that I shouldn't say, Father, just keep me from saying it. And if there's anything that I say that they need to hear, Father, amplify in their hearts for the days to come. Father, we love you. Thank you for your son, and it's in his name that we pray. Amen. You guys can be seated. 
I grew up in the, I was born in the early 80s, and so I grew up in the 80s and the 90s. And how many of you guys, um, how, many, how many of you guys know what auto stereograms are? Yeah, I didn't think anybody would. I didn't even know what it was until a couple weeks ago when I was researching this. Now, if I were to say the common vernacular of the day, you might know what I'm talking about. How many of you guys know what those 3D posters are? Not the kind you had to put glasses on, but the kind you had to get cross-eyed to see, right? Like, like this right here. How many, of you guys, how many of you guys ever had those in your room? Or how many of you guys ever had kids in your house that had those in, in their rooms? Like, I love these things. And if you want to, you can go ahead and focus on that because that is going to be something kind of funny. Uh, not funny, but kind of cool. Like, I love the fact that, that these, I love the fact that there's something that's just 2D. And when you get the right perspective, like, it just pops off the page. You get, you get depth, and you get shadow, you get contour, you get, and, and it's, it's pictures of some camels. And it's like, I would never see camels just looking at that, right? I, I think that it's amazing that we can take something that is flat, and with the proper perspective, we can s- begin to see the nuances, we can begin to see the importance and the, and the structure behind it. And I believe that Mark is doing this same type of thing. He's basically turning the stories of what we just read, the four stories where Jesus calls Levi... Jesus and his disciples are not fasting. Jesus and his disciples get in trouble for eating on the Sabbath. And then Jesus heals men with a shriveled hand. I think that we're taking these four stories and Mark has put them together in his gospel in such an intentional way to say there is something going on here that you need to pay attention to. There's something that's significant that's going on here that I want to bring it to your attention. Now, I mentioned earlier that I love the gospel of Mark. And the reason why I love the Gospel of Mark, and this is almost sarcastic, almost humorous, but it's also kind of true, um, Gospel of Mark is like the shortest gospel that we have. And so for someone like me who is a slow reader, I mean Matthew, it's like 28 chapters long, and John's like 21 chapters long. I mean, it would take me 28 months to read Matthew. Like, I, it just is a long time for me to read it. But, but at least Mark I can get finished in 16 months, right? Like, high five to any of you guys who are slow readers. Um, but on a serious note, I like Mark because more of this. Mark was the first gospel written. Critics and Christian scholars alike believe that John Mark was the one who wrote the gospel of Mark and that he was the one who wrote the first gospel. And not only do critics believe this, and not only do modern-day historians believe this, but even the early church believed this, the first-century church believed this. And, 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 and critics like, like Josephus, who was a Jewish historian during the time of Jesus, believed that these types of things were true. And so what I like about Mark is that there, there is nothing out there in genre format that tells him how to write his Gospels. He's the first one to set the page for like what a Gospel genre looks like. And, and some critics will accuse you, or will, will, will accuse Mark, of, of not being chronologi- chronologically consistent. And they'll say, you can't trust Mark because he's got things that happen in chapter 2 and chapter 3 that happen way later in Jesus' ministry. And for a guy who's supposed to be writing about the gospel and writing about the truth of Jesus, like, he sure messes things up a lot. To which I believe if Mark were here and he were going to give a defense of why he did it, he would say, well, well, well yeah. yeah. Yeah, of course. I mean, yes, I do start out chronologically. I start with the birth of Jesus, and I talk about his, his baptism, and I talk about his beginning ministry in Galilee, and I, be, and I talk about him, you know, finding disciples, and his miracles and teachings, and on and on it goes. And then I, I, I get to, like, his, his death, and his burial, and his resurrection, and I get to his ascension. Like, yes, my book does follow a chronological timeline, but, but not every story in there was intended to be chronologically consistent. Instead, I was trying to focus on topical consistency. 
And I think this is an example, perfect example, because some of these stories take place in Matthew chapter 12 and even later. But Mark is saying there's something about these stories, there's something behind the scenes with these stories that if you focus enough, you'll realize that they're all connected. These four stories, besides having Jesus and the disciples in them, have the Pharisees present. And when you realize that the Pharisees are basically the backbone behind these stories, the Pharisees are the reason why Mark is including these stories in this section of the gospel, you start to see maybe there's something about the way the Pharisees perceive Jesus. Maybe something about their auto-stereogram that's just messed up, and Mark is trying to help us understand if you have a different perspective on Jesus, you'll be able to understand what he came to do more clearly. And so we're going to go ahead and begin by just taking a look um, at Mark chapter 2, the first slide, Mark chapter 2, 13 through 17. We'll just look at this story. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to leave the slides here for us so that you guys, anytime that I'm talking, you can go back and you can read. But for the most part, I'm now going to like Stephen paraphrase. So we begins by, by, Mark begins by saying, once again, Jesus goes out by the lake and he's teaching and he's preaching and many people are coming to him. And he then sees Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting in his tax booth and Jesus calls to him. Now, real quick, real quick, um, just so that we're on the same page, what, what is this, this lake that we're talking about? Well, in chapter 1, we find out that Jesus begins his ministry after being baptized there in the Jordan River by going to the Sea of Galilee. And if you want, uh, I've got a map to just kind of show you where this all is taking place at. Um, the Sea of Galilee is right towards the very, very top. Come over here so you can see it. Right there. That's the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus is beginning his ministry life in chapter 1, and he's around the Sea of Galilee, and while he's there, he's preaching and teaching, and then he calls a set of brothers, Andrew and Peter. And he says, Andrew and Peter, leave your nets behind and come follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And so they leave their boats, and they leave their nets, and they follow Jesus. And then the very next paragraph, Jesus sees another pair of brothers, James and John. They're sons of Zebedee, and Jesus says to them, James and John, come and follow me. To which... They leave their father Zebedee and the hired men in the boats, and they go and they follow Jesus. So we see that Jesus is in Canaan. So again, whenever we get back to our, when we get back to chapter two, verse thirteen, and it says once again they're around the lake. We know that we're talking about the Sea of Galilee, and Jesus has this following because in chapter one, over and over and over again, Mark is intentional about letting you know everywhere Jesus went, there was a crowd following him. He went to he went to one person's house to heal their mother-in-law, and the entire town came to see that. In the beginning of chapter 2, Jesus is preaching and teaching, and the house is so full that the four friends had to lower their other friend down the roof so they can get him to Jesus. Like, everywhere Jesus goes, there is a massive following. And Jesus is calling disciples, and he comes to his fifth disciple, and he says, Levi, I've been preaching about repentance. I've been preaching about the kingdom of, the kingdom of God is near. Why don't you come and follow me and see for yourself? Now again, to understand this tax collector system, um, I don't think any of us are, are hard-pressed to understand no one likes paying taxes. Um, but there's a difference between our culture and their culture. At least in our culture, we know when we go to the grocery store how much we're going to be taxed for our food there at the, like the sales tax. And we also know come April 15th, we know if we make a certain amount of money, we're going to be taxed a certain amount of money with an income, uh, with our tax bracket. No more, no less. If we pay more, we get a refund back. If we pay less, we owe that money back. No more, no less. Whether you agree with it or not, we at least understand that that's a, as about as good of a system as it can get. And in the first century, that is not at all how it worked. The first century worked more like this. The Jewish nation was occupied by the Roman Empire. 
which means the Roman Empire came into the area, came, in fact, it was a massive empire, and the Jewish nation was basically just the area that we saw there on the map, and the Roman Empire was, was, was much, much vaster, much more, and much bigger. And there was... There were, rulers and provi- there were rulers and kings in the different provinces of the Roman Empire. And in the Jewish area, you had King Herod. And King Herod, let's just say that one day he goes to Galilee and he says, you know what, to make my kingdom work, I need $100 a month from this area. So what he does is he gets on his computer, he sends an email, and hits it out and sends it to anybody who's willing to listen. And he writes in his email, he says, if there is anybody who lives in the Galilee area, or Nazareth, or Cana, or Babylon, sorry, uh, Bethlehem, or like if there's, anywhere, if there's anybody who's in, living in these cities, and you know the commerce of the, of the town, you know, you know roughly how many sheep there are, you know about the cattle, you know how healthy the cattle are, you know how much they're selling for in the marketplace, you know how much sheep, or sorry, you know how much fish are being pulled out day in and day out, week in, week out. You have an idea of how much they're being sold for. I need somebody who knows the ins and outs of the trades and the commerce there in each of these cities to basically tax everybody accordingly. And I need $100 per month from this region. Who can get that for me? And he hits send, and then moments later, his inbox blows up. And King Herod gets the first email that says, hey, I can get you $100. And he's like, okay, good, at least somebody can. Then somebody else writes in and says, I can get you $110. Well, I mean, if you're King Herod, which one are you going to pick? You're going to pick the highest bidder. So he's like, well, maybe there will be more higher bidders. And somebody else sends in, hey, I can get you $120. Someone else, $125. And then Levi, again, making up a scenario as far as a number goes, Levi sends a response and says, I can get you $150. And King Herod is like, any other takers? No? All right. It's yours. Levi, you are the tax collector. Which means, if Levi didn't get that position, the guy who offered 125 would be the one. And if that guy didn't get it, the one who offered 120 would be the tax collector. So you see, whoever the tax collector is, if it wasn't for that guy, they wouldn't have to pay as much in taxes. The Jewish nation despised Jewish tax collectors because they turned their backs on their fellow Jewish brothers and sisters and their families and their neighbors, and they instead sided with the Romans and gave them all the money, gave them all the wealth, gave them all the power. And the way that Levi would make his money, let's say that it's been 20 days into the month and he already has $150, any more that he makes than that, it's his pure profit. So one month he might bring in 200 he gets 50 bucks. The next month, he extorts a little bit more, gets $300. Well, now he sends 150 to King Herod, and he keeps 150 for himself. So tax collectors, they, they, just, they were not liked. It was not like our system today. They were so despised that the rabbis taught the tax collectors were not welcome in the temple. They were also not allowed to give their sacrifices in the synagogue. And, and politically, in the Jewish courts... A tax collector, a Jewish tax collector, had no say. You could not listen to him. He could not take a testimony. You could not take a stand if you were a Jewish tax collector in a Jewish court. And the reason for that is you're a liar. You're a manipulator. You're an extortionist. You, you cannot be trusted. And so politically, in the, in, in the courts, you had no say. You had no, you had no word. So for all intents and purposes, Levi, who's at his tax collector's booth, is marginalized and shunned by the Jewish nation, and Jesus says to him, there in his tax collector's booth, he says, Levi, come and follow me. And he gets up and he follows Jesus. Because I believe Jesus, for the first time ever, Levi is able to see in Jesus. You know, I, I know the stories of the Old Testament about how God wants repentance. But for the past 
I don't know how long it was a tax collector, but for the past couple years, if not decades of my life, I have seen over and over and over again nothing but rejection. And now for the first time, I see a rabbi who says, you, you're worth it. Come follow me. I will show you repentance if you just walk with me. Now this, this fear, uh, infuriates the, the Pharisees. So go ahead and go back to our slide with um, verse 15. Chapter 2, 13. So in verse 15, it says, While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, Pharisees saw him eating, and they were just, they were just mad. The Pharisees said, How can Jesus be sitting at the table with Levi and Levi's friend Bob and, Le- and the other friend Derek and Sean, and those names aren't in there, I just made them up, and, and like, how can he sit at the table with these tax collectors and eat with them? Doesn't Jesus know? If he's a real rabbi, if he is the real son of God, if he is, the, if he is divinity in flesh, he would know the hearts of these people. And also, he would know that we don't eat with people that we don't agree with. So why is Jesus doing something? He can't be a good rabbi. Notice that the Pharisees come to the disciples. And they go to the disciples and they say, hey, Jesus is wrong. In the next couple of stories, we're going to see that they come to Jesus and they say, your disciples are wrong. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. But here in this moment, they say to the, the, the disciples, why does Jesus do this? And Jesus overhears them and he steps up and speaks for himself. And he says this, I didn't come I didn't come for you guys who think you're righteous. Who, I didn't come for those who are good enough on their own. I didn't come for those who, who follow every step of the law and, and have no need for a savior. I didn't come for the healthy. I didn't come for the righteous. I came for the sin sick. A doctor doesn't have patients that are healthy. A doctor has patients that are sick. And for you to understand the autostereogram that I want you to know about salvation, if you want to understand the perspective change, you have to have your eyes focused on the perspective change is not about you and your righteousness. It is about what God, through Jesus, can do in you. And we'll unpack that as we go on. But Jesus is setting the stage, and Mark is setting the stage to let us know that the first thing that we need to understand about the Pharisees is that they just don't get the right picture. They, they, they've, missed, they've missed the point. Their eyes are focused on the wrong thing. Uh, Matt Chandler, he is, he is a well-known preacher and teacher, and he's also a Christian author. And I, I like to listen to, his, uh, to his, his sermons. I like to listen, I like to read his books. And there was one time a couple years ago, I was listening to something that he said, and it stuck with me. It was very profound. So obviously it wasn't for me. And he said this. He goes, our culture, uh, and again, I'm paraphrasing him, so Matt Chandler, if you're watching this, sorry for misquoting you. Um, he, he's not going to watch this. <laughs> so um, in our culture, there is a problem. The problem is that people think they're pretty good. Think about it. If you walked around and just walked the streets of Nightdale or walked the streets of, uh, of Raleigh, or for me, if I walked the streets of my college campus uh, of, of NC State where I work, and I, it's not my college campus, but it's where I work, and, and I were to ask them, hey, if you were to die today and you see Jesus, you see God, do you think God's going to let you into heaven? And I think the response of most people is going to be something like this. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm pretty decent. I'm a pretty decent guy. I've never robbed a bank. I've never murdered anybody. I've never stolen stuff from the grocery store. I've never cheated on my girlfriend. And if I did, I'd do it, I didn't do it 14 times like that guy did. Like, like we, there's always a sense of saying, I'm not as bad as what I think I am. I'm not as bad as what I am. And Matt Chandler goes on to say that if God looks at you and says, yeah, you know what? You're right. You're not that bad. Is that God a holy God? 
Or is he just as messed up as you are? Because a holy God who looks at me, and I think I'm a pretty decent guy, but a holy God who looks at me and says, yeah, Stephen, I know, I know what you've done. I know how intentional you were about doing them. I know about your thoughts. I know about your, your greed and your anger and your pride and your lust. And I know about the different things about you that make you who you are. And I'm holy, and I'm, I'm worthy of praise, but I, I'm okay with that stuff. Do those line up at all? God cannot be holy and look at me and say that I am good. And the Pharisees have this problem where they think, God looks at me and all the checklist things that I do for him, and whenever I get to heaven, it's going to be like, well done. Thank you for doing such a good job with your checklist of faith. Welcome to heaven because of what you did. And Jesus is like, nah, nah, nah. It's not about how good you are. It's really about how broken you are and how much you love me when you turn to me. When I was in second grade, I'm going to transition with this story to tell us about the next two stories. The next two stories were the fasting conversation and, and the story about um, eating on the Sabbath. When I was in second grade, I was really good at math. And, and just interpret that to mean I understood multiplication, or sorry, I understood addition and subtraction. That's all I knew, just addition and subtraction. And as I was ending second grade, I wanted to figure out multiplication. And so I thought to myself, you know, Stephen, you're pretty smart, at least in second grade, not so much now, but you're pretty smart. You, you can figure out multiplication. I mean, you're, um, you're, you're really quick with addition and subtraction, so it shouldn't be that hard. So one day I was at home, and I sat out to figure out multiplication. <laughs> and I, I went to the place where everybody goes when they want to think about the deep things of life. I went to the bathroom, and while I'm on the bathroom, while, while I'm on the throne there, I'm thinking about two times two, because the only thing about multiplication I knew was two times two and two times three. That was it. No one had explained anything to me. I just happened to know those were the answers. So I'm sitting there, I'm thinking, two times two is four. All right? I mean, two plus two is four. <laughs> Multiplication is easy. It's addition. It's literally the same thing. It's just addition. It, maybe, maybe the sign just got lazy and fell over, and the plus sign became an X. Like, it just got tired and fell over. Two plus two is four. Two times two is four. It's the same thing. I'm, I'm going to fact check myself. Two times three is six. Well, perfect, because two plus three equals... How? Oh, doesn't equal six. But two plus three equals five. And if you take two away from three, you get one. Five plus one, six. So maybe, this is fun, right? Maybe multiplication is the addition... How messed up is this? Is the addition of the numbers, the subtraction of the numbers. You add those two totals together and you get your answer. Let's prove this with two times two. Two plus two, four. Two take away two, zero. Add four and zero together, you get the answer of two times two. It's four. I come out of the bathroom, I'm like, Mom, Dad, I figured out multiplication. And they were like, no, what, no? Really? And I was like, yeah, it's simple. Two times 10, 20. Like, well, yeah. Two times 50, 100. Well, yeah, and how'd you figure that out? <laughs> it's really easy, guys. You add the numbers together, subtract the numbers together, and then add those two sums together. Take two times 10. 10 plus two is what? 12. Take two away from 10, you get eight. Add eight and 12 together, you get 20. Two times 50. 50 plus 2, 52. 50 minus 2 is 48. Add 52 and 48 together, you get 100. I'm telling you guys, I was like, my parent, the look on my parents' face was, <laughs> was priceless. It was like, our kid is either a savant prodigy, which I'm not, 
he's either a prodigy and thinks about math in a way that nobody else ever has in his entire life, and he's just brilliant, we're going to get rich, or he's, he's, just, he's just insane. He just sees things that are just not really real. He's not really there. And here's the, thing. here's the thing. Two times any number, except for zero and one, which I didn't know that, two times any, that works with any number times two. It falls flat on its face with anything else. Three times four is 12. Three plus four is seven. Four take away three is one. Seven plus one does not equal 12. Like, like I was convinced. I was convinced that I was right. I was convinced that I had figured out multiplication, and it turns out that in only one aspect was I 99.9999999999999% right. In every other instance, with every other number, I was dead wrong. And Jesus, with these next two stories, is trying to tell the Pharisees, you think you understand multiplication, but you're wrong. You, you think that your system is good, and in some cases, it is excellent. But the way that you've manipulated it, it's, it's nothing but wrong. And so the story goes, it continues in Mark 2, verses 18, and then the story with the fasting is, is, is in this moment. It says that John's disciples were fasting, and the Pharisees' disciples were fasting, but Jesus' disciples were not. And so people come to Jesus, and they say, why is it that their disciples fast when yours don't? Now, real quick, just to understand what's going on here, because there's something that's happened that's commonplace that we just don't see. When God gave Moses the, the, the law, there on Mount Sinai, after Egypt, when God gave the Israelites the law, God gave them 613 laws. You can find those, if you want to count them, in, in Leviticus and Deuteronomy and Numbers. I haven't counted them, I just trust rabbis for this. And, and rabbis agree there are 613 laws in the Torah, or in the first five books of the Bible. And in those 613 laws, God spells out things like, hey, if you want to love me, then honor the Sabbath. If you want to love me, honor your father and mother. If you want to love me, here's how you wear your hair. If you want to love me, here's the kind of clothes you wear. If you love me, and this one's also in there, if you love me, don't sacrifice your children to pagan idols. I didn't think that needed to be sated, but God was like, yeah, you guys are going to do this, so I'm going to state it anyways for you. Like, he gives them 613 laws and says, this is my heartbeat, don't break it. And the Pharisees and the scribes and the rabbis and the teachers of the law and the priests all got together and said, you know what? And hear me out, this is, this is a beautiful thing. Hear me out. This is the law God gave us. We need to make sure that we never break God's law. If my kids ever came to me and said, Dad, I know your laws, I never want to break them. How do I do that? It would melt my heart. So this started out 99.9999999% good. God, we never want to break your laws. What do we do? I know what we do, guys. Let's interpret God's law. And let's put this hedge of protection called the Mishnah. It's just the oral tradition of how they interpret the law. And the Mishnah becomes written down eventually, and it becomes the Talmud, which is the Jewish book. Basically, it's a commentary on the Mosaic law. And, and they have for 1,500 years from the time of, of the, the law being given to Moses, to Jesus, there's 1,500 years of all these rules and regulations that says, well, when God said... Uh, to fast, this is what he meant. When God says to tie, this is what he meant. When God said don't work on the Sabbath, this is what he meant. It's so weird that e they even have a law that says on the Sabbath, if you were to cut your leg, the Mishnah says you can tie a tourniquet on it and keep it from bleeding out, which is, you know, good for them. I'm glad they had that in there. But they said you could not put a bandage on it. You could not put ointment on it. You could not heal it. You could not do anything. So basically, if you go home today and you're cutting some lettuce up and you like nick your finger, 
you can put a tourniquet on your finger, but like you can't put Neosporin on there because you're just going to be sinning against the, the, uh, the, the Jewish way. And the idea behind it was putting a tourniquet, put a t- putting, putting a tourniquet on it prevents death which, you know, that's good. You can prevent death on the Sabbath, but you cannot promote work, and healing is a work. So therefore, you can't do that. You have to wait until Monday. Technically Sunday, because Sabbath was Saturday for them, but here, our context, Monday. Wait until Monday. And so here we go with this fasting conversation, and they knew that God said, I want you to fast. I value fasting because it tells me that you are mournful for your sin. It tells me that you realize that you're broken and that you need me. But then God requires fasting only once. It was on the Day of Atonement. And so the, the, the nation of Israel, the teachers, the, the Pharisees, the scribes, the rabbis, the priests, they all said, okay, if God values fasting, then we should do it more than just once, right? Like, if my dad values something and, and I, I love my dad, I'm going to do it more than, than once, you know? And they decided over 1,500 years that you should fast twice a week. It was common practice Historian Josephus said that basically all Jewish people, all good boys and girls that were Jewish, would fast on Monday and Thursday. It was a common practice. It would almost be like if you were talking with your friends at work and said, hey, I've got a really cool church. You should come check it out, you could, you should come check it out next weekend at 10.15 at Hodge Road School. They know exactly where, when, and everything like that. But did you notice you didn't say on Sunday? Like, it's just common. Like, we know Sunday is, at least for the most part in our culture, Sunday is the day of, of worship. And so Monday and Thursdays were the day of fasting for them. And apparently, it must be a Monday or Thursday in the story because Mark says it was a day for fasting. Everybody was doing it, but Jesus' disciples were not fasting. And they come to Jesus and they say, why do your disciples not fast? Jesus, if we can't prove you wrong with the story of Levi, then we're going to go after your disciples because if we can disprove them, if we can show that they're not good followers, then you are a crappy rabbi and we've done away with you. So why do your disciples not fast when they should? And Jesus says, uh, how can they? Because the bridegroom is here. Which, which to me, in the 21st century, that's like a non-answer. Um, give me the name of, of, a, of a football team that you guys like. Patriots. Patriots. All right. So it'd be like saying, my wife said, Steelers! Um, <laughs> so it would be like uh, Jesus being asked the question, who's going to win the Super Bowl this year? And Jesus saying, oh, it's going to be the Patriots because I mowed my grass today. How is that an answer? Hey, Jesus, why is the sky blue? Uh, Because I have a minivan. (laughs) Jesus, why do your disciples not fast? Uh, Because the bridegroom is here. Like, how is that an answer? Until you realize that the 613 laws, God valued marriage. And the Mishnah said, if God values marriage so much, and the marriage ceremony should be a joyous thing, and there should be celebrations, and everybody should have a good time partying, and the marriage ceremony lasts for five, if not seven days, if you're wealthy... You can't have a Monday and Thursday without running across a five-day conversation with, with a wedding. And so the rabbis taught that if you went to a wedding ceremony, get this, you could break your fast. Right? Because no one wants someone at the wedding saying, oh, I'm sorry, I can't have your cake because I'm thinking about how sinful I am. Right? You can't have your piousness at a wedding. And so Jesus answers in a beautiful way. He says, you want to know why they're not fasting? Because by your own, own understanding of the law, there's a party going on. There's a wedding ceremony going on. The bridegroom is here, and of course, they cannot fast because your law tells them that they can't. Like, Jesus is mic dropping in front of them, a beautiful thing. Like, you guys are so concerned with all of your rules and regulations that even whenever, they, even whenever there's a way that you can do it honorably, you still want to point fingers at them because you just think they're wrong. 
Your understanding of salvation, your understanding of multiplication is wrong. It started out good. It started out logically somewhat sound, but like it, it falls apart when you pull at it. And the next story goes on with the, with the grain and, and the field, and it's, it's Mark 20, it starts Mark 2, 23. And it starts out with one Sabbath, Jesus is going through this grain field, and the Pharisees walk behind him, and they start, they start grabbing some of the grain from the field, and they eat it. And the Pharisees come to Jesus and says, Aha! <laughs> Again, there's no reason to get to this one, Jesus, because it is the Sabbath, and you guys are eating and doing something that's unlawful on the Sabbath. Not that eating was unlawful, but what they're doing is, is unlawful. And God, uh, Jesus says, uh, no, 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 no. They might be breaking your laws, but they're not breaking God's law. You see, their law said God values the Sabbath so much that we're going to define, we're going to define, we are going to define work as you can't harvest, you can't sift, you can't winnow your wheat, you can't prepare meals, you can't put a bandage on a wound, you, you can't walk more than a certain, like let's, let, let's just put a number two, you can't walk more than a mile on the Sabbath because if you walk more than a mile then surely you're a sinner. Like a anything else that you do, like they, they defined what it meant to work. And Jesus says, have you not read, which of course they would have because they're Pharisees and they're good boys, they're good Jewish boys, and they would have read, and they would have not only read but memorized and Jesus says, have you not read what King David, did? sorry, that was my, my, my mistake, he wasn't king yet, Mark didn't make that mistake, I did. Have you not read what David did whenever he and his men were hungry, and he goes to Abiathar, the high priest, and says, Abiathar, we are hungry. And Abiathar said, I'm sorry, only thing I've got for you is a consecrated bread that's reserved for the priest and priest only. And then Abiathar and David realize that even though the law says that it's for the priests, there is there is something a little bit higher than that law, and that law is the value of human life. And if someone is about to die, you give them food so they don't perish. And Jesus says to the Pharisees, you guys are so concerned with this checklist faith, with doing all the right things so that you, don't get me wrong, don't get me wrong, we need to be people who do amazingly good things for God's kingdom. Do not mishear me. I am not saying you can walk out of here and do whatever the, whatever the crap you want to do. Like, you need to be a somebody who walks in step with Jesus. But if you are doing it so that you can earn salvation, so that when God looks at you, he says, you know what, you're not that bad. You have missed the point. You don't understand multiplication. But if you do your good deeds because the Father loves you and because Jesus has saved you and you want to live a life that honors him, now you start understanding what the real heart of the law is about. And Jesus says, you're missing the point. King, sorry, David knew how to live obediently to the law, be a man for God's own heart, and still in some ways break the law. Because, and then they get this, Jesus says, because Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. I was checking my time there. <laughs> when the law was given to the Israelites, they had just come out of Egypt. There at Mount Sinai, they were in slavery in Egypt for 430 years. That, that's, that's a little, that, that's a long time. America has been a nation for not quite double that amount of time. Like, like, like 250 years. And for, an, and for 430 years, the nation of Israel lived in Egypt where they were slaves. And every day, they were taught that your value comes from how many bricks you can make. And Jesus is reminding the Pharisees that on the law, Mount Sinai, when God gave the law to Moses, he tells the people, 
you need to slow down. You need Sabbath rest. Because for the past 430 years, you have been ingrained to think that your value comes in what you can produce for somebody else. If I could give my kids one thing, it would be the fact that they would understand that, that God loves them simply because they are a child of God. Doesn't mean he's always proud of them. Again, don't mishear me, but God loves them because they are a child of God. And God tells the Israelites, you need to have at least one day where you say, it does not matter what I do. My definition of success in life, my, my sense of self-worth does not come from my job. It doesn't come from how many bricks I make. It doesn't come from anything else except for the fact that I can rest in God. And I wasn't going to say this, but I will say this. The Sabbath began at sunset. Sorry, I'll rephrase that. Every day began at sunset for the nation of Israel. Our day begins when we wake up. Their days for hundreds and hundreds of years began by eating a meal and going to bed. Because the nation of Israel understood that you need to rest. Your day is not about what you do at your job. Your day, you are not the sum of your job. You are not wrapped up in the eight to five job that you have. You are not wrapped up in how many bricks you can make. You are wrapped up in the fact that you are a child of God. And so Jesus says the Sabbath was made for man. God didn't make the Sabbath and then say, okay, man, I'm going to make you next so that you honor this. He made man and then gave Sabbath as a blessing, as a way to say, remember what is important. And what is important is that you are mine. Then the story goes on. Mark continues with his fourth story in Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. And Jesus comes to the synagogue, and there's a man with a shriveled hand. And there were some people there looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. They were looking for a reason to dismiss Jesus like they have been doing so far. And Jesus sees this guy with a shriveled hand. And he sees the Pharisees and everybody who's there, and he asks them this question. What is good to do on the Sabbath? You guys have a bunch of rules about Sabbath. You have even a tourniquet rule about when you have something bleeding from your leg, you can't do anything about it until Monday. What is good to do on the Sabbath? To do good or to do evil? What is lawful, to do good or evil? So, Jesus sees a guy with a shriveled hand. And everybody's watching what Jesus is going to do because this is important. If Jesus is going to heal on the Sabbath, he's breaking the Mishnah. He's breaking, you know, that whole like hedge protector thing. Like, he's going to break the Mishnah if he heals this man. Here's, here's what's amazing to me. What harm would it have done Jesus to wait till Monday? I mean, seriously, what harm would it have, what, what harm? I mean, think about it, what harm? Like if you're, in, if you're arguing with somebody and you can say, yeah, but why not just wait a day? I mean, maybe the Pharisees are right. Maybe. Unless, unless, if by Jesus honoring the fact that they have a broken rule, that'd be like my parents saying, hey, good job with your math problem. Good job thinking that two plus two and two minus two equals four because that's multiplication. If Jesus said, you know what, you're right. I'm gonna wait until Monday just because, you know, the Mishnah then Jesus would be saying, your understanding is okay with me. 
And Jesus is saying, no, it's not okay with me because this man has a shriveled hand. Now, in this culture, if you have a shriveled hand, if you have a deformity, in fact, last week when Bobby spoke about the man who was paralyzed, anybody who has, has any kind of ailment, physical ailment, um, leprosy, anything like that, they are, in some cases, outcast to the city gates because they're sin sick, or sorry, because they're physically sick like leprosy. And in other cases, they just realize how vulnerable they are and how broken they are and how, and how, how much of a weakness they are for their family. And it was thought in the Jewish culture, Jesus didn't agree with this, but it was taught in the Jewish culture that if you had an ailment, it was because of your physical representation of sin. Or at least your parents' sin, and they passed it down to you genetically through a physical form. And so this man, he has a shriveled hand, and Jesus says, hey, stand up in front of everybody. So this guy would have his arm, more than likely have his arm covered up. I know that Mark doesn't tell us that it is, but I can only imagine from the other stories that I have read about people who have, uh, in, in, the, in, the, in the New Testament, people who had diseases and stuff, they would constantly keep themselves somewhat hidden and somewhat out of, out of the limelight until they were trying to get Jesus' attention, and then they would just say all, you know, it doesn't matter, I'm going to go at what Jesus says. And so this guy stands up in front of everybody, and Jesus looks at him and looks at everybody else and says, what's right to do? To heal him or to just let him go? And they don't say a word. And Jesus looks at the man and he says to him, stretch out your hand. <laughs> so the guy probably does this. <laughs> okay, my good hand. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. Stretch out, stretch out your hand. Now, I am not trying to make light of anybody who has a shriveled hand. I'm not trying to make light of this. I'm just going to show you something of what it might look like. In our family, we have a guy, we have a man who has both of his hands shriveled up from a, from a car accident, and he has a hard time holding a phone, and he has a hard time touching the screen, and sometimes he has to use his knuckles and his wrist, and I've even seen him use his nose at times. And for Jesus to say to him, stretch out your hand, do you guys realize how, how physically painful this would have been for this man? His, his wrist and his fingers and his arm and his forearm would just be so cramped. It would just be tucked in because there's nothing else keeping it out. It would just be tucked in. All the muscles are contracting. It's shriveled. It's shrunk up against his chest. And it's just easy to keep it hidden. And Jesus says, stretch out your hand. And so the man does something that's very physically painful and also probably very socially and, and spiritually painful because now he has to show everybody his shame. And so this guy takes the cloak off or removes it and he starts to hold it out. And again, I'm not trying to make light of, but he, his hand would have probably been very painful right now. And as he re stretches it out, physical pain, emotional pain, spiritual pain, he's probably on the inside thinking, God, Jesus, you're making a fool of me, aren't you? And as his hands stretch out, his fingers loosen up, his palm gets strength in it, and his forearm stops shaking, and it's healed. The Pharisees went away from that day on to figure out how they could kill Jesus. If you can look at a story like that and walk away with the perception that Jesus needs to die, you're looking at the poster with the wrong perspective. Mark is trying to tell us that through the stories of these four stories of the Pharisees, that Jesus is trying to help shape our eyes in a real sense, he's basically kind of smacking the Pharisees in the face, smacking their eyes, saying, you need to shake your vision and get it proper. Because if you think for one moment the reason why you get salvation is because you earned it, you're wrong. If you think for one moment that you can keep things hidden from God and just say, I've done a thousand good things today. Yeah, I did a couple of bad things, but I did a thousand good things for you today, and that's okay with God, then, then you're wrong. Instead, what Jesus wants, 
He wants you to be vulnerable and he wants you to stretch out who you really are to him. He wants you to say, this is who I am, God. And we'll wrap up with this idea right here that I think Jesus is saying, you've got shame. You hide it well. But you've got shame. You've got greed. You hide it well. But it's there. You're angry all the time. You hide it, you hide it well, but I know it's there. And on and on it goes. On and on the lists of the things that we have, the things that we keep close to our chest, the, the, the anger, the bitterness, the, the lust, the greed, the pride, the, the, the being addicted to work, the being addicted to other things like alcohol and drugs and, 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 and racist thoughts and anger and, and just what murderous rage, all the different things that are in us. And, and God says, I, I know you've got shame. You hide it. And for the most part, you hide it well. But if you want to have true redemption, you need to come to me. You need to bring that to me. Open up and let me heal you. When the story of the conversation, the fasting took place, Jesus said, the time will come when I'm no longer with the disciples. And when that day comes, they will fast. The Greek there for the time will come whenever, the, whenever I'm no longer with them, it is a forceful Greek word that says, the time will come when I'm ripped away from them. And Jesus is telling the Pharisees, you may not understand it, but the time will come when the cross is necessary. The time will come when I will be ripped away from, from the disciples. I will be crucified, I will be hung on a cross, and I will die for their sins. I will die for them to have salvation. I will die for them to have redemption and wholeness and completeness. Thank you for listening to Movement Christian Church's sermon podcast. Want to learn more about us? You can do that by visiting our website at movementchristianchurch.com or on our app available on iOS and Android devices under Movement NC.